I will start with uh, Laurel Nakadati. She is a photographer, a video artist, and a filmmaker. Uh, born in Austin, Texas, raised in Iowa. BFA from Tufts University and uh, Boston, Fine Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, and an MFA from Yale University. And her work has been exhibited at MoMA, um, and she has a massive, massive uh, exhibition today at uh, PS1 that's uh, there through August. So if you haven't seen it, you have lots of time to go do that, and hopefully you will. Um, and in addition to uh, working in art context, she's also been very successful pr uh, presenting feature-length films. She has two films, um, Stay the Same, Never Change, which premiered at Sundance and uh, went on to be featured at New Directors, New Films. And her second feature, The Wolf Knight, premiered at the Los Angeles Film Festival and uh, won a Gotham Independent Film Award. It was nominated. Nominated. Sorry. Should have won. I lost. Should have won a Gotham. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Um, I should have just let you go. <laughs> like the whole talk, I they was lost. Like, no. like I lost. Yeah. There'll be other ones. Yeah. It's better to be a loser. There's fewer expectations on you later. <laughs> um, and yeah, so that we're really lucky. Laurel was in Krakow, uh, I think, about 48 hours ago at a film festival, and she's on her way to another one in. Nashville, so uh, it's a real uh, uh, gift and pleasure that she was able to be here with us tonight. So thank you, Laurel, for being here. Thank you for having me. And um, we also have the amazing uh, fortuitous thank you uh, occasion to have Ruben Ojean. <laughs> not, not perfect. <laughs> not perfect. That's yeah. Uh, and Ruben holds two doctorates: one in philosophy and one in. <laughs> That's what I heard, right? Isn't that true? Right. Yes. <laughs> uh, and social anthropology. And he's the director of research in moral philosophy at the CNRS. He sits on the editorial board of the French Review, uh, this really important French Review. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and his work builds a non-paternalist minimal ethics based on the principles of neutrality, regarding concepts of right and good, and to the equal consideration of everyone. So, with that, we'll begin tonight's talk. The way that it's going to go, sort of, framework-wise, is that um, Laurel is going to present uh, her work, and, and then, um, I believe, uh, Ruen will have a sort of a response and, and has prepared some remarks to follow that, and then uh, we'll engage in the discussion, and at that point, um, we will welcome everyone to uh, join in that discussion, I think, and... And uh, we'll take it from there, and, and hopefully that works. Cool. Yeah. Is there anything else we should say to begin, or is that um, good? I think that's plenty. Plenty. Yeah, maybe too much. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So. All right. Well, in Boston in 1995, and 
I don't know if any of you went to women's schools. Did any of you go to all women's colleges? Which one did you go to? You did. So have you been staring at that, thinking like I, I was also there at that time. So you might be in these photographs. I doubt it. Okay. Um, so I, <laughs> I didn't know anyone in Boston, and I was like a first-year photo student, just trying to figure out what it meant to make pictures and tell a story and investigate something that I didn't understand and was not a part of. So um, the one friend I had outside of Boston went to Wellesley College, and at the time. My understanding of women's schools was something from the deep and distant past that didn't really exist anymore, but guess what? They're still here, they exist, they're very prestigious, they're hard to get into, and I thought these women would be really nice, good girls studying in their footed pajamas at the library at 9 a.m., like really spending their parents' money really wisely and getting a great education, which they were doing all those things, but they were also doing all of this. And, you know... Um, now I look back at these pictures, and I think it was a very interesting moment in girls' culture, and, um, you know, this, this, for me, an amazing time in my life, because I was 18, 19 years old, figuring out what it meant to take a camera around and use it as access and to gain entry into a world that I wasn't part of. It was pre-YouTube, pre-MySpace, pre-Facebook. It was a world where you could do things and they wouldn't end up on the internet the next day. So the women let me into their lives. I took pictures for four years of... So then um, I went to grad school. I got to grad school and... Uh, oops. Um, and uh, I realized I didn't want to study girls anymore. I wanted to um, look at the lives of men. Um, part of that was in direct opposition you know, from like doing this project for four years, looking at girls' lives, I was just so girl cultured out at that point, and I was tired of talking about girls. I was tired of um, explaining why I was making pictures of people and not being in the picture myself. I was tired of the conversation of exploitation of the other. I was tired of having to constantly defend myself as to why I would want to make pictures about a culture I wasn't part of. So I decided I'll put myself in the work, and that in some way will explain my relationship to the work. Um, so I started walking around New Haven, Connecticut. I was a first-year grad student at Yale, um, and I started meeting strangers. At that point in my life, it seemed really, really important to just meet strangers and to just um, be out in the world and engage with the world and get off campus. So um, I met strangers through chance encounters, like in the Home Depot parking lot or... Um, in the elevator or, like, you know, outside the grocery store. Um, any transient place was really interesting to me because transient places are all about trying to get from where you are to where you want to be, which ultimately is about, you know, this motivation for, for the greater, better thing, even if it's, like, the greater, better thing involves the Twinkies in the store or the greater, better thing is, like, the, the gas station at night and, you know, the dream of down the road the better thing is happening. So... I met strangers, and the first project I did was a series of short videos where I would go home with the strangers and perform girlish activities and make videos about it. So what was interesting for me at the time was this idea that we were creating a relationship on camera that wouldn't exist had we not agreed to make this video art piece together. And I was also really interested in the idea of asking single men who didn't have wives or children to care for, to care for me or to give me time or to, you know, I always think that this idea of asking anyone to spend any time with us or give us any attention at all is to be um, put in a position of vulnerability. Um, like, when I asked them to do this with me, I was put, putting myself in a position to be rejected. 
um, and they were in a position of vulnerability because they agreed to take part in this performance. And I thought that there was this sort of amazing energy in the room when neither of us really knew what was going to happen, and that um, that uncertainty was, was really interesting to me, and at the time, something that I was really interested in um, investigating. So, that's oops, so, uh, oops, full screen. Oops. Um, and then I also made a video at that time called Happy Birthday. Um, and these are all three channel pieces. If you see the show at PS1, they're three channel pieces, but for screens like this, I try to, you know. Um, and in this video, I asked those same men to have a birthday party with me. I think at the time, I was really interested in the idea that we can set out to have the most glorious, wonderful experience, and it can just all go wrong. Um, I was really interested in slapstick and dark comedy at the time. Um, and in this video, each man sings to me and eats cake with me, and it's just seemed to me nothing sadder than like a birthday party for one person, and it's like not even their birthday, but you're pretending really hard. Um, but what joy and sort of generosity that they, they showed by having that party with me. Um, so I finished grad school and I moved, uh, I traveled around the summer after grad school and I started making videos sort of about these small personal moments and how they meant the greater world. So I would have like these little meditative strange moments um, out in the world while things were happening behind me. Um, I went on a road trip, shot some of this video, came back to um, oh, here's another one. This is a performance where I went to my grandparents' house the day before it was going to be sold and change hands. And this is the house where they, this is their bedroom. This is the bedroom where they, you know, like were married for 50 years. And um, the house where they raised all of their children and just, you know, the house that I remember visiting them in my entire life. And so I danced for the entire night before illegally changed hands. And nobody saw this performance with me. I did it alone. Um, it, it was really kind of, in some ways, probably an absurd performance. And I think a lot of my performances are, could be seen as sort of absurd because it's not like they're really doing anything in the public. They're these strange sort of feverish moments that I have alone and then share through video. Um, but I danced all night for them as sort of a dedication for them. And then the next morning, like turned in the key to the realtor and that was it. Um, this is a performance where I um, met a guy in Florida and went up to him. He was sitting in that white chair, and I just asked if he'd have a party with me. <laughs> <laughs> he did. I mean, it's kind of too good to be true. It's like he was just waiting in some ways to have a party. I mean, he was, like, <laughs> he was dressed for it. Um, this is a performance where I was begging dead animals to wake up. Um, I thought there was something interesting about the futility of asking for something you can't have or wishing for something that can't be. So I begged dead animals to get up. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, I am very happy to be here uh, as an academic, and uh, especially a French academic. I never expected to be one day on Union Avenue in such a great <laughs> place, with just nice people, and to see such a nice show, and to come in. Sorry. Well, um, my idea was uh, at the beginning not uh, because I am not an art critic. I didn't want to make any uh, 
comment on your work directly, but I, I thought it would be more interesting to comment on what people have written on your oh. work. So this is the moment we could bring out like the reviews I haven't read. Exactly. Like, so how did you feel when the horrible thing was said? And then I say, well, no, I don't it didn't mean. say away, but when I see this, what I've seen uh, this, and I've seen your work at the PS1 as well, what strikes me first is that how irrelevant it looks like, or what uh, has been written about you. It's so strange because, for example, the slapstick spirit and of your work and, and, and the beauty of your text is uh, so, sometimes so ignored. I can't understand mm. why. So it makes me feel now that it's totally stupid to do what I'm doing, that speaking about something which is uh, irrelevant, but it's too late to change. So. <laughs> <laughs> do you feel like you're sliding down the like fire pole and now you have to go put out the fire because you have the address, but you actually now... No, like just because I don't lunch. feel like easy okay. enough in English to say what I feel now. <laughs> But then the text that I have written was about uh, what people have said, uh, because you are an artist which, who has provoked a lot of reaction, as you know, and, and uh, uh, a lot of writing, a lot of thinking, and I was very interested in this mass of documents uh, which has been written about uh, you. And the debate about your work, because there is a debate about your work, is full of references to a small family of concepts which are always the same, like exhibitionism, voyeurism, and manipulation, you know, like all this, you know. It's, uh, and I know you are tired of hearing of this, but because I want to defend you against all this, <laughs> I have to quote them. Um, well, uh, personally, like just to uh, say something which addresses my view about this question, I think that our criticism would uh, 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 like would be better off at this point if they would get rid of all this concept. You know, like uh, it just makes it so stereotyped on the criticism when they use this uh, concept. I think that the extensive use of uh, this voyeurism, exhibitionist manipulation of the author, objectification or what is uh, written, has brought in criticism, bad psychology, and pointless moralism. Um, I think that this concept brought in pointless moralism because they make us think that there is something intrinsically wrong with watching like undressed people or with uh, showing uh, like being undressed. It's so strange. Or, like manipulating consenting people, make them like behaving in a st uh, funny way in front of a camera, looks like something which is intrinsically bad. So this is so strange. Uh, but I think it's just uh, something that comes from the use of this concept. Like they, they put themselves in such a moralizing stance and they use all these psychoanalytic uh, uh, tools and the result is some like missing totally the words are watching. Um, but Finally, I would like to say more about uh, uh, some more point which has been made uh, uh, about people who are thinking on your works. And it was the idea that people who are behaving on your videos, on your uh, photographs, are making a fool of themselves by accepting. It's not that like they don't consent to do it, but the fact that they accept, they, they behave like a clown. And it's the same for yourself, like dressing up like Britney Spears or behaving like a, a child or all this. It's like you are clowning somehow and making a fool of yourself. And then I think that this is a basic criticism. Why? Because I, uh, wait, those who say that you are manipulating these uh, lonely people uh, because you are a very seductive young woman and then, of course, you can do whatever you want with them and they don't take into account the risk 
you are uh, you spoke of, and um, I think that nobody could think that you are your intention is to harm them or to humiliate them. It, it would be stupid to think this. But what they think is that you, you bring them to make a fool of themselves, and you bring yourself to make a fool of yourself by, uh, for example, dressing up like a girl scout as you have done, for example, and playing and all this. So. Let's think about this idea of making fool of oneself. What's wrong with making a clown of yourself or making a fool of yourself? So, you see, like in, 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 in philosophy, more philosophers, they think that there might be something wrong in doing this. And, uh, <laughs> you know, there is, uh, 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 there is an old answer coming from Kant. And he really wrote like directly, uh, he gave this example of uh, placing yourself intentionally in an embarrassing situation. It violates your human dignity. This is exactly what you are doing. You are putting yourself in an embarrassing situation with people. And you would say, Kant, if you would among, uh, be among us, that you are uh, uh, making a fool of yourself. And it goes, really, it's bad because you violate your human dignity. For Kant, it was a moral crime, for example, there's something you can read in his text, to accept to be beaten up in exchange for a glass of beer. I don't know if it still exists, this kind of thing, but... <laughs> well, uh, but this is an extreme way of making a fool of, of oneself, but this is what he was blaming. He says that, yeah, just like you shouldn't do something like this, like being paid for being beaten up, it just goes against your own dignity. And then my point is that as long as, as a poor fellow who has accepted the beer doesn't harm anyone else but himself, then he doesn't nothing anymore. This is in my opinion. I think, well, maybe he acts a little in a ridicule manner, but he doesn't do anything against human dignity. I think it's just an exaggeration, like overstating the fact. In a way. Um, like, uh, strictly speaking, I would admit that he did something ridiculous, maybe, uh, but there is nothing immoral in being ridiculous. At least this is what I would defend. And I like very much all of your uh, work, like for many different reasons, but uh, from the ethical point of view, I thought that what's most interesting is that you, all your work brings us to question this moralistic Kantian mantra that making a fool of oneself is something which is bad. That's it. <laughs>